Love that, man. What an incredible privilege to be here with you. I have to say, I love Prodigal. I love seeing the journey that God has just been doing through your church. And so uh, thank you for welcoming me into your home. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And just I love John. I love you. And love the fact that we can spend time worshiping together and opening up God's word and listening to what he has to say and submitting ourselves to this, to this book. If you've got one of those books on your phone or you have one with you, you're going to need that today. We're going to flip through a series of texts together. But my name is Joe White. Uh, I represent the Jackson neighborhood. The Jackson neighborhood is just east of downtown. It's from First to Cedar to Larry Kings Canyon. And me, along with my neighbors, we see our neighborhood like a geographical area of spiritual responsibility. So whether the issues are economic or political, spiritual, relational, whatever, we invest ourselves in those issues making them our own because we believe that God has a powerful plan for our neighbors. Our neighborhood is a, a challenge. There's 71% of our neighbors don't have a high school education. Uh, average income in our neighborhood is $26,000 a year. But we could spend the rest of our lives breathing into the wind about how many problems there are, but we believe in a big God who can do big things. I think actually you here at Prodigal believe that. You believe in a big God who can do big things. And so we as neighbors in the Jackson neighborhood, we imagine a neighborhood where God is putting all things new, is making all things new, putting all things back together. And so we started a, a church called Neighborhood Church. It's a group of neighbors who are investing in the Jackson neighborhood. We started a business which employs people with barriers to employment. And we started a nonprofit which meets specialized needs in our neighborhood and with very specific care. So when you think about Neighborhood Church, you think about Joe White, it's really three things. It's a small business, a weekly gathering, and a nonprofit all working together for eight blocks by 12 blocks. 923 homes. And, and while all that's really, really interesting, uh, that's not why I'm here today. Why I'm here today is because I truly believe that God wants to speak to you about the neighbors that live next to you. Just think about that. I truly believe that God has strategically placed you to live exactly where you live. You don't need to move to the Jackson neighborhood. You don't need to move to a poor neighborhood. You need to be in the neighborhood that you are living in right now. But I believe that God has a plan for you in the neighborhood that you represent here today. And, and so really, as I kind of think about that, that's this story about how I came to realize that God loves my neighbors really begins much earlier than the Jackson neighborhood. And so I'm here to remind you today, and I'm here to rekindle you today, I'm here to inspire you today from the Word of God to give you perspective that where you live matters and who lives next to you matters. I'm going to ask you today, do you know your neighbors? Do you pursue them with great intensity? I mean, Jesus said these words in a very familiar text. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your, say it with me, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was weak. We're going to try that again. <laughs> Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, with the same intensity that you would do that, go love your neighbors. Same intensity. In other words, he says, everything I've ever said, past, present, and future, hinges on whether or not you will pursue me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors. And we like to micromanage God, don't we? Go, hey, he's talking about, is he talking about, you know, the people I work with? Well, maybe. He's talking about the people I go to school with? Oh, well, maybe. What about the people that live next to you? What about those people? I think that it includes 
those people. Would you agree? And if that's true, you need to ask yourself some hard questions today. Do I love my neighbors? Am I invested in that? Am I pursuing them? Am I pursuing love for them? And so I'm here to remind you of that great truth today. I'm here to rekindle you and recommit you to the mission that Jesus has for you in the neighborhood you represent. I'd like to do that just by sharing with you some of my story. But really, some of, the, some of my story is, is deeply embedded in some of the texts of the Bible that spoke to me as a child as I grew up. And so I'd like to just walk you through those texts, uh, those scriptures, and allow you to be rekindled and reminded of that incredible truth. If you were living here in the 90s, many of you were, you remember a city that was devastated. You remember Fresno was the number one worst on everything, number one uh, in, in murder. N- number, uh, in fact, uh, the Fresno Bee had a headline in the 90s, America's dirtiest city. <laughs> Uh, number two in worst air in the nation, highest concentrated poverty, number two in the nation. I mean, the city was disintegrating, and churches um, were siloed. They were not working together. Churches were interested in what they were doing. They weren't interested in the well-being of the city, and the city was disintegrating underneath our fingers. I grew up in Clovis, I grew up in a suburb of Clovis. I knew everybody on my block. Uh, The next-door neighbor had a golden retriever. There was a Mormon family on the block. That's basically what every suburb has somewhere in it. (laughs) And I watched my family start to lead Bible studies as part of a church in Fresno in their living room. And, And I remember as a little boy watching these Bible studies happen. They would open texts like Luke chapter 4. You can turn there if you'd like. In Luke chapter 4, you have this amazing moment where Jesus had never said anything in front of people before, but he, he comes into the synagogue, and it says all the eyes of the synagogue were on him. And then someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. Do you remember the text? And he scrolls through the text of Isaiah, and he, the text says that he finds the place in it which says these words. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And if you remember that text, or you're seeing it in front of you, remember the moment where he rolls up the scroll and Luke is careful to say that all of the eyes of the synagogue are on him. It's a way of saying you could hear a pin drop. And then he says, today, these words are fulfilled in your presence. What he's saying is, everything that I just said, I will do. Everything that I just said, I will do. Everything that I just said, I'm about. I'm about that stuff. He's giving us his mission statement in the world. I watched my parents lead people through texts like that and ask the question, what would that mean for how you live then? I watched them track the story of Isaiah. I'm sorry, the story of Israel, as, as mentioned in the Bible. You know, uh, the Bible follows this amazing uh, group of people through the course of their history. They had a brutal history. 
the, the Jews, taken over seven times in Scripture, exiled seven times. Foreign nation would come into their nation and rip them apart and carry them off as slaves. One of those occasions, the Babylonians did this. The Babylonians came into their land and took them as slaves. And then all of a sudden, in the book of Jeremiah, as recorded in Jeremiah, they're freaking out. They're like, God, I thought you had a plan for us. Like, this can't be the plan. We're the, we're the chosen people of God. Like, we have your special blessing to a blessing to the nations, and we're slaves. We're slaves. How does this make sense? And finally, in Jeremiah chapter 29, God breaks the silence. He gives them the game plan, how he wants them to live as, as exiled people, as slaves. He says to them these words in Jeremiah chapter 29, 7. You can turn there if you wish. It says, Seek the well-being of the city to which I've carried you. Pray for it, because in its well-being, you'll find your well-being. He goes on to say in verses 8 and 9 and 10, the way to do that is to make babies and to plant, plant gardens and to build houses and to establish yourself. The, the way you seek the well-being of the city is to root yourself in that place. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, do you remember that famous Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. You remember that verse? That's what that's about. So I watched my parents flip open to texts like Jeremiah 29 and ask the question, what would it mean for us as Christians to live this way in our great city? I, I, I watched them open texts like the book of Colossians. You know, if I, if I hand you a Bible, you look uh, like a cool dude, I'm going to hand you the Bible, and I told you that this is the only book in the Bible. This is it. You want to read the Bible? Here it is, the book of Colossians. What if I said that, that were true and you didn't know? And I said, what I want you to do is I want you to read the book from the beginning to the end, and you tell me what a Christian is. All right? You would have to conclude that if Colossians were the only book in the Bible... A Christian is somebody who takes on the city's structures and systems as a way to redeem them in Jesus' name. That's what Colossians is about. So I watched them open texts like Colossians and say, what would this mean for us as Christians to live this way in a city so dysfunctional at a systemic level? But I also watched them open texts like Philippians, which, by the way, is right next door to Colossians. And if I came to you, my friend, what's your name? Nathan. Nathan. If I came to Nathan and gave Nathan a, a text, and it was a text of Philippians, and I handed you that text, and I said, Nathan, this is the only book in the Bible. I want you to read it and tell me what you think a Christian is. You would read the book of Philippians, and you would have to conclude that a Christian is somebody that fosters a personal relationship with Jesus and recognizes what Jesus has done on his behalf. In other words, you have the, the public faith of Colossians right next door to the personal faith of Philippians. I watched my parents live out and call into question, what would it mean if we had the public faith of Colossians and the personal faith of Philippians? It was these texts and so many others that, be, that began as a, as a family to ask the question, if, if Jesus showed up in Fresno, just showed up one day. Where would he live? I don't know. Lots of neighbors to choose from. There's 92 neighborhoods. 
Where would he choose to live? He just showed up one day. He's like, yeah, I'm in Fresno. And you got to live somewhere. Where's he going to live? It's actually not an odd question to ask. Scripture is filled with, with cities. There's 1,090 cities mentioned in the Old Testament. There's 160 cities mentioned in the New Testament. There's 142 cities in Scripture mentioned over hundreds of times. The, the Bible is filled with questions about cities. In fact, there's whole books in the Bible about cities. Like Nehemiah. Nehemiah's a young kid like some of you. He's, he's grown up in Persia. He's not Persian. He's Jewish. But he was exiled there. His family was carried off as slaves. And there he is, had grown up in a per Persian culture, a culture not of his origin. And he hears a story about his people about his people being devastated by war. He, he hears in chapter 1 about, about the, the city Jerusalem being in, in, rump, in crumbles and the wall is broken. And if you remember that story, you can turn there if you wish. There in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he weeps. Do you remember that? His heart like breaks. And he comes up with this creative and audacious plan. He's going to go to the king of Persia and ask him if, he, if the Persian king would allow him to return to his, his family's origin, to, to the city of Jerusalem, and rebuild it. And crazy enough, the, the Persian king, miraculously enough, the Persian king allows him to go. And then the text tells us in chapter 2 that he goes to the surrounding villages and nation, uh, counties and asks for a human tithe, one out of every ten people, to join him to rebuild the wall. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. He gathers people's assets, builders and masons and carpenters and stone layers. He gathers them together like a human tithe of people willing to rebuild the city together. You see, it's texts like this. If Jesus showed up in Fresno, where would he live? Where would he want to rebuild? And, and in the 80s and 90s, my parents concluded that if Jesus showed up in Fresno, he would probably choose the highest crime, lowest income neighborhood in the city, and he'd start there. At that time, it was a neighborhood called the Lowell Neighborhood. The Lowell Neighborhood was six blocks running north to south, divided by one block running east to west. 6,000 people living in a high-density place with a lot of problems. And so they and us and a few other families decided to move into the, into the Lowell Neighborhood together to live intentionally and to see God do a miracle to see Jesus do what only Jesus can do, which is make all things new. After all, that's what Jesus said, didn't he? Behold, I make all things new. He didn't say make new things. I make all things new again. Stuff I've already made. I'm rebuilding, rekindling, renewing it. And so they joined Jesus in that incredible mission there. In some ways, they, they were like Isaiah. You know, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, you have God saying, Who will go? Who will I send? And you remember that moment where Isaiah raises his hand and says, I will go, send me. And, and my parents and some others decided to raise their hand and say, I will go, send me. See, the, Fresno is 112 square miles. And I believe that God is on a mission of renewal in our city. Do, do you believe that? 112 square miles that God looks at and says, that geographical area of responsibility is mine. And I'm on a mission of renewal there. The question is, how does that work? 
How does he get the job done? How does he go about the work of renewal? I believe that God, that God does that through you. There's no other plan, man. There's not another game plan. The only way that he has chosen to work in our world is through you. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. Let's try that again with more effort. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. 92 neighborhoods across Fresno, many of which are, 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 are represented in this great auditorium. Those 92 neighborhoods have a purpose for renewal, and that happens through you. It happens through people who take up the mission of Luke 4 and say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because I've been anointed to tell good news. Right. It, it's people who, who take on the responsibility of Jeremiah 29. I will seek the well-being of the city to which I am carried. I will pursue its well-being because in its well-being, I'm going to find my well-being. It's the people in this room who decide to have the public faith of Colossians and the personal faith of Philippians. You, you are being called to the city. You are being called to the neighborhood that you live in. And like Isaiah, I'm asking you, would you be willing to raise your hand and say, I am willing, send me. Is that you? If it's not, all good. Sit on your hands. Be a nothing. But I'm, but I'm not interested in being a nothing. I'm interested in making a difference for Jesus. Because I've got the Spirit of God living in me, and I believe that you do too. And with unlimited potential and power, God would mobilize you to love your neighbors and seek their well-being. You say, but Joe, that sounds like a lot of work, and I'm busy, and I get it. I have four kids. I'm just keeping afloat. You say, but we're out doing sports every weekend. When, when do I have the time to to do these things. I get it. I'm, I'm with you. These things are hard. Maybe you say, Joe, but I can't do big things. I'm not going to move from the suburbs to a neighborhood like Lowell. I'm not going to live in a place like Jackson. I, I get it, and I actually don't think God's calling you to do that unless you believe he is. But here's the truth. If you can't do big things, do small things in a great way, right? If you can't do big things, do small things in a great way. If Jesus showed up in Fresno, where would he live? I think he'd live in your neighborhood, through you. In Mark 12, there's this famous text, and we've mentioned it already before, but I think it's worth it to look there in your Bibles. Verses 30 and 31, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Someone comes up to Jesus, a scribe, and asks him a very simple question. What's most important? Good question. He's getting right to the point. No fluff, Jesus. No extra. What's the main thing that I need to be about? What's the main thing that the God of the universe thinks is most important? And this is how Jesus responded in verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let that sink in, my friends. 
If you commute out of your neighbor to go to work and then come in. If you commute out of your neighbor to go play and then come back in. If you commute out of your neighborhood to go to church and then come back in. And your life is so disentangled from the very people God has called you to love. I have to ask you, how possibly could you obey that? Time-wise. There's only 24 hours in a day. How could you possibly obey that if your life is so disentangled from the neighbors who live right next door? How does God show up in a neighborhood? He shows up through you. The truth is, everybody in this, in this auditorium has eight neighbors. Say eight? Those are the eight people that live around you. The three who live across the street, that's that person, that person, and that person. The three who live behind you, it's that person, that person, and that person. And it's the person who lives next door here and next door there. That's eight families. Those are your eight families, the eight people that God is asking you to pursue with great intensity. But the question is, then how, how do I love those people? Maybe you need to hear today these words in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Maybe this is a word for you this morning as you consider how to obey Jesus in this incredible calling of renewal. Verse 14 says, wake up, sleeper. Well, there we go. Maybe some of you need that word today. Verse 14, wake up, sleeper. Wake up, you're sleeping on the job. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Maybe verse 14 is your wake-up call this morning. Maybe you're like, I'm sleeping on the job. I got eight neighbors and I only know one of their names. Or I've been in my neighbor for 30 years and I don't know that many folks. And I w- these people don't know that I love them, but they need to. Maybe that's you today. It's like, time to wake up. Time to wake up. Time to wake up. Maybe that's a word for you today. Or maybe, maybe you need to hear verse 16 today. Verse 16 says, make the most of every opportunity. Everybody say opportunity. In the Greek language, the language that this text is written in, there's two words for the word time. The first word is the word chronos. Say it with me, chronos. Sound familiar? Chronology. It's where we get our chronological time. Everybody here is on a 24-hour day. If you're not, woo, you're crazy. So 24-hour day. You're on chronological time. There's another word for time in the Greek language, though, and that's kairos. Everybody say that word. Kairos is also a word for time, but it's best defined this way. Fully present to people and place. When you see the word opportunity in this text, make the most of every opportunity, the word is kairos, not chronos. It's the same idea, you'll see it in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Outsiders is a, is a Bible word for neighbors, so I'm just going to use that word. Be wise in the way you act, toward, act towards neighbors. Make the most of every, oh, there it is, opportunity. Make the most of every kairos moment. What's happening? You see, the Bible is saying that you and I are living in chronos time. God recognizes that. That's part of what it means to be a human. Thank you very much. But what he's doing in your chronos life is inserting kairos moments. He's bringing kairos opportunities to love your neighbors in your chronos life. That's important. It's important because... It means that your life and the way that you live your life has the potential to change someone else's if you would see 
the kairos moment that God is providing. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. You got a guy beaten up on the side of the road, Jesus tells this story. And sure enough, a neighbor, somebody, sees him. The priest sees him, the professional religious guy, looks a lot like me probably. Sees him beaten up on the side of the road. Is he on, let me ask you, let's Q&A time. Is he on Kronos time or Kairos time? What's he do? Is he on Kronos time or Kairos time? What do you think? Kronos. He just keeps walking by. I got somewhere to be. I got to go to the temple. I can't, this, this opportunity doesn't look like a lot of opportunity. It's going to get in the, in the way of my day. And so what does he do? He keeps walking. Same thing with the Levite, right? The Levite sees the guy. In fact, the text tells us that he jumps to the other side of the road and walks faster. Those guys are on Kronos time. How many of us have felt that way? Like, man, I don't have time. I got, my day is packed. I don't have time to deal with this. But then you have the story of the Samaritan. The Samaritan sees that same guy, and what's he do? He goes over to the guy, he bandages him up, he takes care of him, he provides for him. He, the text is careful to say that he touches him. This is a way of saying that he is on Kairos time. You see, you're living on Kronos time, God wants you to live on Kairos time. What are the opportunities that you're missing because you're moving forward too fast, because your schedule is way too packed. If you're committed to Kronos time, you'll miss the Kairos moments that God is providing to love your neighbors. My friends, I need to ask you a hard question. Um, and I recognize that I'm not in my, in my house of worship. I'm in yours. So I'm going to be as gentle as I can in my 6'5", 260-pound frame. Okay? But... I need to be clear. Is your Christianity impotent? Is your Christianity ingrown? Is your Christianity insignificant? It is time for you to assume the mantle that God is commanding of you. It is time to love your neighbors. Those eight people are waiting to meet Jesus through you. They're waiting to see your love for them. They're waiting to see the way you act towards them and seize the moments that God is providing. A friend of mine, Randy, uh, is a very successful business person. And he was mentioning to me some time ago that his life is just exhausted and he's tired. Maybe you felt that way. Too much with too little time to do. I get it. Randy felt that way too. Randy said, I, I did an experiment some time ago. I was just feeling exhausted and tired and I was sitting around the table on an odd evening when I had a night to eat with our whole family. He had three kids. He's sitting at the dinner table, and he did an experiment. He said, I, I want everybody here at the table to count the number of relational worlds that you're involved in. And so each person around the table began to count those relational worlds. You know, you have a Bible study, and you have a church group, and then you have a, uh, a club, and then you have an extracurricular, and then you have a, you know, just count the number of relational worlds, the groups of people that you are invested in. 
In his family of five, they found that they had 32 disconnected, fragmented relational worlds. He said, it has left me exhausted and tired with low bandwidth for anything extra. I, I call this crowded loneliness. Is that you? Crowded loneliness? You're so invested in everything, you can't be invested in anything. You're so overextended, you can't be in, embedded into anything. Crowded loneliness. Over the next months, he said, after realizing that this was true of him and his family, they began as a family to cut the number of relational worlds they were involved in. This meant one sport team, not two. It meant uh, one group, not two. It just, they just started to size down, just slowly. Months passed, and they, they realized on a Tuesday night, his wife and him, that there was an odd night where they didn't have any obligations, nothing to do. It was kind of like, wow, like we get, it's like the first night we've been free in a long time. This kind of cutting back is actually working. And, and so on a Tuesday night, his wife suggested, why don't we just go sit in the front yard and sit on some lawn chairs and pray for, pray for neighbors and just kind of just be present to people in place. And, and so sure enough, that's exactly what they did. They found some lawn chairs and sat on the front yard. And sure enough, not long after sitting in the front yard, a neighbor, Tom, came over. Now, Tom, everybody, every neighbor, whether in suburbia or a neighbor like mine, has a neighbor, Tom. It's the guy who wears, like, the big guy with the overalls and he's kind of boisterous personality. And so um, Tom came over and saw a football in the front yard. He said, hey, when your kids left a football in the front yard, you want to pick up a football and throw it around? Randy's like, sure. And so sure enough, they got in the, in the street and started throwing the football around. Not long after that, a few other neighbors came out of their homes and they started throwing the football too. This became a massive game in the front yard. Well, they got so passionate over the next many months of playing football that they worked with the city to put a stop sign at the end of their street, you know, to slow traffic so they get another play in. And sure enough, this little cohort of neighbors became actually kind of some friends. Randy reported to me recently that most of those people have come to follow Jesus and most of those people are now part of the church that he attends. You see, you see, he's decided to love the neighbors that live next to him, and God will honor that plan because God is on a mission of renewal in the city of Fresno, 92 neighborhoods that he will live and work in through you. So will you, like Randy, love your neighbors? That is a choice that you're going to have to make. But it will take waking up. Wake up, O oh sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Maybe that's the word that some of you need to go away from church today. I've been sleeping on the job. I love Jesus. I love my church, but I have not obeyed Jesus' command to pursue my neighbors with the same intensity that I pursue him. Maybe your word today is wake up. Or, or maybe, maybe for you, it's to, to intentionally self-limit your busy schedule like Randy did so that you'll be able to seize the kairos moments that God is providing. Because that's the only way you seize a kairos moment is by intentionally self-limiting yourself to see those moments not as <sighs> bummer, but as opportunity, as opportunity, as opportunity. So wake up and seize the moment that God is providing. As Noe and the, and the band come up to lead us in worship, I'm going to give uh, you a chance to respond to that question. 
My friends, I'm, I'm calling you to love your neighbors. And, and you here need to decide if you're willing, like Isaiah, to raise your hand and say, I will go, send me. If that's not you today, that's okay. God's got all the time in the world to work with however slow you choose to be. But I believe that in this auditorium, as we sit with these many friends, I believe in this room, God is calling you to love the eight neighbors who live around you. And if you're inspired and you've rekindled yourself and you're recommitting yourself to that amazing call, I believe that God will provide you a Kairos moment this week to show your neighbors that you love them. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says these words, and it's important that you know them. The command to love with your neighbors comes with a promise. It says, you are the light of the world. You are. You are the light of the world. Maybe we'd say, you're the light of the neighborhood, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The promise that you are the light comes with the commandment to love your neighbors. When you decide to love your neighbors, God says, my light is shining on you. You are the light of the neighborhood. You are the light of your neighborhood. You are that God has made you that, so don't put your light under a bowl. That's dumb. Put your light out so that all people can see it, and specifically the neighbors who live next to you. My call to you this morning is to wake up and seize the moment. So friends, could I invite you to stand to your feet? I'm going to ask you to do something odd. In a short moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand as a sign like Isaiah did, that I will go send me. If that's not you today, there's no shame in this. There's no guilt in this. This is an invitation that God is giving you to change the world. So if that's where you're at right now, if that's what you're committed to right now, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say, I will go send me. I will go send me because I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of my neighborhood. And God's going to show up on a mission of renewal when I choose to love my neighbors. If, if that's you and you're saying, I will go send me to love my neighbors, would you just raise your hand with me? I'm going to pray for you, those for whom raise their hands. Lord Jesus, I pray for each and every person in this room who has decided to love you with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And now you are commissioning them as your chosen to be on a mission of renewal, to shine, to shine with the brightness of Christ and pursue love for their neighbor. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.